I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 10th, 2017. Coming up, we hear about the Van Allen belts around the Earth, atmospheric nuclear testing, and effects on satellites. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Honeybee populations have been declining for the past few decades. The long list of likely suspects include commonly used pesticide, the neonicotinoids. Recently, scientists tested honey from across the world for those pesticides and found traces in the majority of samples tested. Neonicotinoids are the most widely used class of insecticides worldwide. They are taken up by plants and transported to all their organs, including flowers, thus contaminating pollen and nectar as well as any fluid produced by the plant. There is widespread concern over the global loss of biodiversity. The decline in bee abundances is particularly alarming given their role in pollination. Bee losses are a major threat to human food security and ecosystem stability. The researchers found at least one of five tested compounds in 75% of all honey samples. 45% of samples contained two more of these neonicotinoid compounds, and 10% contained four or all five. The neonicotinoids were found at levels considered safe for human consumption. However, their ubiquitous presence confirms the widespread contamination of bees and their environments, despite recent efforts to decrease use of this pesticide. Recently, France banned the use of neonicotinoids. Extending such a ban might reverse the loss of honeybees, but it's important to remember that many factors, such as habitat loss, also contribute. This study was published last week in the journal Science. By expanding across the earth and by developing global trade, humans have been a major force in the spread of animal, insect, and plant life. Most often, this transport of non-native invasive species to new locations has catastrophically affected local environments. For example, the ballasts of transoceanic ships brought zebra mollusks from Eastern Europe and Western Asia to the Great Lakes. Once in the Great Lakes, the zebra mollusks outcompeted native species and drastically changed the chemistry of the lakes. Typically, non-native species invasions are driven by transportation like boats, planes, and trains. Some researchers, however, have found a new method for the rapid transport of non-native invasive species to new locations human-made objects swept to sea by tsunamis. In a recent issue of the journal Science, researchers report that they mapped the discovery of over 300 non-native species of life on the eastern portion of the Pacific. These species are native to Japan and had not been previously seen in the eastern Pacific. The researchers show that these species arrived in the eastern Pacific by riding on debris from a tsunami. This process, called rafting, occurs naturally, 
but human activity has increased the availability of material to act as rafts. Any human-made object that does not degrade quickly, like plastics and sheet metal, can act as rafts that carry a variety of life across the ocean. For example, when a tsunami strikes land, water rushes over the land and then ebbs. As the tsunami ebbs, plastic bins, metal roofs, docks, and fishing vessels are swept out to sea where life quickly accumulates on and around these structures. This life includes mollusks, crustaceans, and fish. The strongly receding water flushes these life-filled rafts out into the currents of the Pacific, where the circulation can bring the species to new environments in the eastern Pacific. So far, there is no evidence that any of these species have permanently established themselves in their new homes. Many of these non-native invasive species may fail to compete and die out in their new environment. Some, however, may thrive, driving out native species and changing the local ecology. Only time will tell. For now, researchers have revealed this previously undiscovered relationship between human activity and tsunamis. This is Hell on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. In 1963, the United States, the Soviet Union, and Great Britain signed the Limited Test Ban Treaty, agreeing to not use and test nuclear weapons in the atmosphere, underwater, or in outer space. France continued atmospheric testing until 1974, and the last atmospheric test was done by China on October 16, 1980. Over 500 atmospheric nuclear tests had been performed before then, but none since. That could soon change. North Korea has threatened to do an atmospheric nuclear test. Even if that test doesn't lead to a chain of more dangerous events, and considering the potential health impacts of the dispersed radiation, it turns out that simply testing a missile in the atmosphere in a nuclear explosion could lead to highly charged electrons that would tend to fry the electronics of Earth-orbiting satellites. It's a complex issue, and one that ties in with the huge magnetic fields that protect the Earth and the satellites orbiting around it. These magnetic fields include some areas that attract highly charged particles. These are areas are called the Van Allen belts. Earlier this year, we reported on a discovery from the Laboratory of Atmospheric Space Physics in Boulder about how very low-frequency radio transmissions sent to military submarines deep underwater accidentally help satellites high above the Earth by reducing the impact of the Van Allen Belt's radiation. So, might those very low-frequency waves also protect us from the satellite-frying effects of an atmospheric nuclear weapons test? Or, if things get too crazy here on Earth, could a spacecraft with very low-frequency radio and a well-designed magnetic field protect people from space radiation? And help them escape. These are questions that come to mind for How on Earth's Shelley Schlender. Now here's Shelley's investigation about the Van Allen belts, whether cell phones 
would work after a nuclear explosion and escaping into outer space. I'm Shelley Schlender. Here's some music in honor of the Van Allen belts, magnetized areas high above the Earth that are filled with highly charged particles that can fry Earth-orbiting spacecraft. Earlier this fall, North Korea announced plans to conduct a nuclear test above the Pacific Ocean. This could generate its own sort of Van Allen belt full of particles that mess up GPS satellites and things like that. North Korea is not the only country that has ever considered testing nuclear weapons in the atmosphere. Here's a 1960s-era speech by John F. Kennedy about nuclear weapons. No nuclear test in the atmosphere will be undertaken, as the Soviet Union has done, for so-called psychological or political reasons. But should such tests be deemed necessary to maintain our responsibilities for free world security, in the light of our evaluation of Soviet tests, they will be undertaken only to the degree that the orderly and essential scientific development of new weapons has reached a point where effective progress is not possible without such tests. JFK also talked about nuclear weapons treaties that were just then starting to get underway. Test ban treaties have reduced the number of highly charged particles in our atmosphere, according to Dan Baker. My name is Daniel Baker. I'm the director of the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics at the University of Colorado at Boulder. In his office, he points to a computer simulation of the kind of charged particles that filled the atmosphere in the 1960s. This is a picture of the way the radiation environment was when nuclear explosions were pumping huge amounts of electrons in the early 60s into the magnetic field of the Earth. The bombs, the starfish and other bombs, the three Soviet explosions that occurred back in that same time frame. The limited test ban treaty was put in place shortly after this. Now what is worrisome to us from a political standpoint today is that there are nations, for example North Korea and other who may not be adherents to such treaties that may be thinking once again that this might be an interesting way to mess with modern technology. One test in the air and I don't get to talk on my cell phone. <laughs> this is not the kind of experiment that we want to really perform. To find out more about our magnetized atmosphere and how the Van Allen belts fit into them and what might protect our orbiting stuff from highly charged particles and maybe protect spacecraft someday. Here's a research physicist at the Space Sciences Laboratory in Berkeley, California. His name is John Bonnell. The first question for John has to do with getting a better understanding of the magnetic fields around the Earth, which the Van Allen belts are part of. So are these magnetic fields overall a good thing or a bad thing? For people on Earth, it's a very good thing that we have both a thick atmosphere and this magnetic cage around ourselves. That cage keeps things like cosmic rays, keeps those from making it all the way to the ground and causing mutations and biological damage. It also keeps the wind of ionized particles and magnetic field that comes off of our sun from stripping our atmosphere away. John Bunnell, it's been said one reason Mars has so little atmosphere is that it doesn't have a magnetic field around it, so the solar winds are always scouring any atmosphere it produces. Yes, and I think that's the current 
hypothesis that's well supported by observations, particularly by the MAVEN mission that's currently in operation around Mars. We don't want that to happen to the Earth, do we? That's exactly right. If we were to have our atmosphere scoured away, A, we wouldn't have air to breathe, and B, we wouldn't be protected from all of the energetic particles that come in. You can think of the Earth's atmosphere as on the order of a foot worth of lead between us and all of these energetic particles. So it's a very effective radiation shield combined with the Earth's magnetic field. So the Earth's magnetic field, what it does is it likes to curl particle trajectories up. So if you have an energetic charged particle coming in, starts to feel the influence of this magnetic field and it starts to bend, bends them away and protects us from the direct impact of those particles. But if there are particles that are embedded in the Earth's magnetic field, like the Van Allen radiation belts, it traps them. Would you think of the Van Allen belts like the part of the magnetic field where some particles get stuck? That's exactly right. Particles are stuck. They've been captured. They heat up. You end up with the particles being several hundred times more energetic than they were when they first got into the Earth's magnetic field. It doesn't affect us directly biologically here on Earth, but it does affect what we put out in space? That's correct. For example, the, the GPS constellation, it lives right in the heart of the outer radiation belts. And that has an enormous impact on the design of those spacecraft. They have to carry a lot of radiation shielding, both for their solar cells and for the electronics inside to allow them to live in that harsh environment and support us you know, with the, the GPS technology that we've become practically dependent upon. To protect these vehicles from that radiation, you have to put on a lot of extra mass that makes them heavier. You have to have a more capable rocket to get them up into orbit. It means that you have less mass on board to put electronics on. So they become more shielded and less capable because of this. The highly charged particles in the Van Allen belt can make it harder in many ways to have orbiting space satellites, such as for GPS. However, as some good news, a few months ago, CU Boulder scientist Dan Baker and his team figured out that radio transmissions to military submarines help scrub highly charged particles out of an area just under the Van Allen belts. This makes them much safer for satellites. You have to wonder if these special radio signals sent to submarines might also help in the event of a rogue nation state defying test ban treaties and exploding a nuclear weapon in the atmosphere. Which leads to this question for scientist John Bonnell. Well, what about those submarines? What about the submarines? Ah, the submarines. So this is an interesting aspect of the Van Allen radiation belts. Now submarines, Typically, you can't talk to them with radio because they're underneath the ocean. But it turns out that there are low-frequency waves that you can put up great big antennas, you know, basically antenna systems that fill valleys. And you can communicate at a very slow rate with these submarines, with these so-called VLF, very low-frequency transmitters. Those waves, you know, they leak down into the ocean, a submarine that's carrying long antenna can pick up these very slow communications and basically know that they need to come up and use their more capable systems. What also happens is these VLF waves leak out the top 
you know, a, a sort of trivial way to talk about it is they tickle the particles of the Van Allen radiation belts. They change the velocity of the particles and they can cause those particles to dump into the atmosphere. The other aspect of this is that, you know, since the early 60s when the exoatmospheric starfish nuclear tests were done and it was discovered that one could produce an artificial radiation belt close into the Earth, the Air Force and other aspects of the United States government have looked at what's called radiation belt remediation, where they would use these VLF waves from the ground to dump a radiation belt that was either accidentally or purposely put into space. Here's one thing, John Bunnell. Mm -hmm. We have had many times where we thought it's no big deal to play around with Mother Earth. What if clearing out particles from the Van Allen belts did something like creating an ozone hole mm. and did something nasty? Could it mean that our magnetic field doesn't work as well for clearing out and protecting us from cosmic rays? It's true that one should think about unintended consequences. You know, when you dump these energetic particles into the upper atmosphere and they produce x-rays up there and those x-rays then interact with the, you know, with the ionized particles and with the neutral particles, exactly how that is going to you know, propagate out in terms of the chemistry up there. It's a thing to be careful about, but naturally occurring sources of VLF waves, lightning for example, that's been going on for as long as we've had the water cycle on Earth. The lightning cycle has been happening daily for 500 million years. If we're gonna do things on sort of a sporadic basis, whereas lightning's been doing it daily for hundreds of millions of years, the likelihood of there being a bad side effect is pretty minimal. That's reassuring. I'm Chip Kranditz. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. We're sharing an interview with or an interview from Shelley Schlender with Berkeley Space Science Lab scientist John Bunnell. They've been discussing what might happen if a rogue nation, say North Korea, were to test a nuclear bomb by exploding it in the atmosphere. John Bunnell has been explaining why this might be a bad thing, among other reasons, because the resulting highly charged particles might damage Earth-orbiting space satellites. Bunnell's been explaining that there are some small ways that people could use radio waves to scrub out, not all, but some of the highly charged particles a nuclear explosion might generate. But could scrubbing out those highly charged particles have unintended consequences? Might it damage the Earth's essential magnetic field? Well, to understand whether the answer is a yes or no, up next, Shelley Schlender asks scientist John Bunnell, to demonstrate the interaction of magnets and particles using a Wooly Willy. That's right, Wooly Willy, uh, the novelty toy that features uh, iron shavings, a magnet, and a drawing face. As you move the magnet to drag the iron shavings, you give Wooly Willy thick black eyebrows or an iron shavings beard. So let's rejoin Bunnell as he discusses the science of magnetic belts and set the mood with the song Wild and Wooly Willy. Now, shall we get out the fuzzy willy? Sure. And what woolly willy has is material that's susceptible to magnetic fields. It's probably iron filings. You can see that I've captured some of the material with the magnetic field of this magnet. 
you can sort of see these little curves, how these magnetic particles line up along the magnetic field lines. On Wooly Willy, the black metal filings represent the highly charged ionized particles. And so if you sweep them out with very low frequency waves, does that weaken the important magnetic fields that protect the Earth? When you have charged particles or these magnetic particles trapped in the magnetic field, they actually line up in a way that weakens the field. If you clear them out, the field is actually stronger. Does that mean it's better at protecting us? It's better at protecting us. It bends the particle trajectories better. It traps them better. That's all good for protecting us here on the surface of the Earth. It's a very small effect, but you're beating the dust out of the magnetosphere with these VLF waves, just like you would beat the dust out of a rug with one of those big dust beaters. And so it makes a stronger, brighter magnetic field. That's better at bending particle trajectories and, and protecting us. So what if someday the world becomes too crazy to live on for safety anymore? What if people just want to explore beyond our planet? Could the lessons being learned right now about magnetic fields and highly charged particles and scrubbing out some of them, could this help us build, build spaceships that had very low frequency waves, very targeted to protect the spaceship mm -hmm. carrying people to Mars or carrying people to the moon Titan that orbits Saturn or carries scientific equipment to Enceladus, the most likely place in the solar system to have microbial life. Is there a way we could use what we're discovering about how to clear the Van Allen belt of highly charged particles that would help us in space travel? The use of a magnetic shield has been talked about in terms of both robotic and human exploration of the solar system. There are places in the solar system that are even more dangerous than our Van Allen belts. The Galilean moons of Jupiter sit smack dab in the harshest radiation belt that we know of in the solar system. It's at least a hundred times worse in terms of fluxes and energies. It makes a terrible, terrible place. The issue is a technological one, however. In order to make a magnetic field that extends far enough away from your vehicle and that is strong enough to do what the Earth's magnetic field does would require enormous resources in terms of electrical power and mass. And so for robotic satellites, the choice is almost always just put some heavy material around your electronics and let it go. Now, for human exploration, there's been some discussion of this. Even you know, back in the 70s, when NASA was doing a lot of studies about orbital habitats around the Earth, part of the issue is that in order to make it have a strong enough magnetic field, it's a significant amount of power, and then it still won't protect you from the really harsh solar energetic particle events and the cosmic rays. At this point, technologically, it's still easier to just put mass, water, stone, you know, uh, metals. All right, so if we picture a spaceship someday to take people to Mars, mm -hmm. it would be a little bit like a Southwest Airlines, but the walls would be a lot thicker. That's right. Are we talking about a five foot thick wall or a 20 foot thick wall? Five feet thick, five to 10 feet thick of water tank. Some designs have talked about using stony material from the moon.
Okay, so we can't count on these very low-frequency waves from submarines to mean that we can create the Star Trek Shields Up Scotty. No, unfortunately, the, you know, this VLF, part of how it works is that we have a big planet with a big magnetic field, and we have these transmitters that, you know, that leak out and are sort of exploiting the feature, the natural features, you know, to make changes in the radiation belt. So it was a lucky accident that the submarine signals clean out the Van Analen belt and make it easier for our GPS satellites to work. It is a lucky accident. People understood that these VLF waves had interesting interactions with you know, the ionized portions of the Earth's atmosphere. And then once we had satellites out in space, you could see that there were all sorts of natural VLF waves being generated out there. Let's get back to Space Shields Up Scotty. Sure. If we can ever figure out a way to make this, we could have a lighter spaceship. We could have a sports car spaceship. If one could develop something like this, you could have a sports car, you could have liners, you could have cargo ships, all sorts of things could be enabled by this kind of technology. Comes down to how do you make a strong enough magnetic field that occupies enough of a space. And then it's not really clear what living in a really strong magnetic field would do to people. We do know that without any magnetic field, it causes problems. For creatures that live where it's been neutralized from the Earth's magnetic field, they don't reproduce properly, they, you know, their offspring are blind, there's weird things that happen, so we need some magnetic field. But in order to do this magnetic shielding, it would be orders of magnitude stronger than the field we feel on the surface of the Earth. Nevertheless, it's a fascinating technology that could enable in the future, us to explore more of the solar system with people, with robots. And so it's definitely something that people pick away at slowly over time. Yeah, well, you scientists have figured out a lot of other things. Maybe you'll figure this out too. That's true. I'm Shelley Schlender for How on Earth. We've been talking with John Bonnell from Berkeley's Space Science Lab. We wish these scientists good luck and good tidings on finding out more things about how the world works and also helping make the world a safer place. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Alejandro Soto. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Alan Allen, the Van Allen Belts, and Wild Wooly Willie. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 
Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Chip Granditz.